We invite the children here, kindergarten to second grade, to be dismissed to Children's Church. If you're a kid and you'd like to go to Children's Church, you're welcome to do that. You can find it through the door over here by the piano. But the rest of you, open up your Bibles to Matthew chapter 28, verses 16 to 20. Matthew chapter 28, verses 16 to 20. It's on page 989, 989 in your pew Bible. Just want to thank you and commend you as a church for uh, the way you've You've really uh, taken up this challenge to make room in this worship service. Uh, for those of you who are downstairs, I'm waving at you in the camera. Hello. Which uh, is kind of weird. But I want to thank you guys for uh, sitting downstairs uh, this first Sunday of the month. For those of you who signed up for the first Sunday. And if you haven't done that yet, we'd love for you to, if you're a regular in this service, to pick one Sunday a month to sit downstairs. And uh, just to alert you, one place in the church we still have a really kind of critical staffing need is in the audiovisual for people to help out with the sound booth. So we're really looking for some servants. If you're looking for a way to serve, you're like, I don't know what to do in this church. I'd love to help out. I mean, we really need help there. And we would love to train you. We want people with a servant's heart who, who, want, to, who want to help the gospel go forward. And especially as we become more dependent upon technology to make this work Sunday mornings, we really need people who, who have a heart to say, you know what, I'm willing to come and help you know, once a month, twice a month. So anyway, if you're interested in that or would like to learn more about that, just come talk to me. We'll train you. We'll give you all the the information you need. All right, Matthew chapter 28, verses 16 to 20. Let me read the text. It says, Then the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go. When they saw Him, they worshipped Him, but some doubted. Then Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. This morning we're starting a new six-week series in preparation for Easter. Uh, Think of it as a Lenten focus if you are so liturgically minded. Uh, if you're not liturgically minded, just think of it as an Easter focus. But we are, we're getting ready for Easter and we're, we're thinking about our call to be heralds of the gospel. So we're, we're putting Hebrews on pause for about six weeks and we're going to come back to it after Easter and then we'll just finish up that book. It'll probably take us through July to finish that. But we're going to focus in preparation for Easter on this, this calling we have to, to be those who are heralds of the resurrection of Jesus. So I've entitled this sermon series, Give the Gospel. And the subtitle is, Overcoming the Obstacles that Keep Us Silent. And you've probably seen posters around the church. And uh, So we're going to be talking about this idea of giving the gospel. It's an evangelism series. It's a call upon us to be those who, like the women on the first Easter Sunday, who went to the empty tomb found the body of Jesus gone, met with the risen Christ, and went out and told the world, the Lord is not here, He's risen. We're called to be those heralds to the world proclaiming that Christ is risen. So it's about giving the Gospel. But I have a kind of different maybe slant on it this time, because I'm sure if you've been in churches like ours, you've heard evangelistic sermons where it's it's a call for Christians to go out and share their faith, and you've heard this before, but the kind of different take I'm giving to it this time is found in that subtitle, uh, Overcoming the Obstacles that Keep Us Silent. Because I kind of have a hypothesis. My hypothesis is that most of us here who are Christians are pretty lousy at evangelism. 
and we feel it. You know, we, we know we should be doing it. And I, this is where I put myself in that boat. We're lousy at personal evangelism. How do you go out and share your faith with someone else? And my hypothesis is that the reason we're lousy is in part because we have these mental obstacles, these kind of psychological hurdles that we can't get past and that keep us silent when there are opportunities when we could be speaking. So what I really want to do is, in the next six weeks is identify some of those things that keep us silent and then systematically use the Bible and different texts of Scripture to kind of dismantle those. Uh, so really what I'm doing is I'm calling our church to give up our Christian anonymity for Lent. I would like us to come out of the closet and for, for Easter this year, join the disciples in the New Testament in proclaiming to the world that the Lord is crucified, buried, and risen from the dead. Now, there's uh, more to this series than just a sermon series. Uh, there's a Bible study that goes along with it. Uh, if you're in a small group home Bible study, if you'd like to start a, a brief six-week home group Bible study, we'd love for you to do that. And there's a six-week, uh, uh, six or I think se- six or seven weeks material. It's produced by a guy named Bill Bright, who was the founder of Campus Crusade for Christ, and it's called Witnessing. And you can, I think, pick it up downstairs at the book table. Uh, it's also free online. And we can tell you how to get that. So if you'd like to do that, that's another way to participate. Another way to participate is during the Sunday school hour downstairs in Fellowship Hall, right after this service, there's going to be a class. I hesitate to call it a Sunday school class because it's not going to be a traditional sit in Sunday school and have someone teach you for 45 minutes while you take notes and maybe ask a question. This really isn't a class in that sense. It's a, it's an evangelism forum collaborative work group where uh, Matt Dorn, who's one of our elders, is going to lead us in, in just asking the question, how could we get the gospel to the South Shore more effectively? And just have people brainstorm on what can we do and then work on that and who knows, maybe even implement. I don't know. But, but it's kind of a, a church think tank brainstorm, roll your sleeves up kind of thing. So it's going to be very different. And, and we didn't want to just all be all teaching. We wanted to really be moving us outwards as well to give the gospel. So there's a lot of components to it, and there'll be more, and I'll tell you about those as we go along. But let's get back to the the sermon series. And this morning, I want to address one of the major obstacles. In fact, perhaps the biggest, most looming, comprehensive obstacle that I think we as American Christians face when it comes to giving the gospel and sharing our faith. It's something that it's just everywhere in the bloodstream of our culture. It's just part of the air that we breathe living in 21st century America. And the obstacle is this. It's the idea that evangelism is fundamentally intolerant and therefore immoral and inappropriate and bigoted and we shouldn't do it. It's the idea that that you're not allowed to talk to anyone else about what you believe with a hope to persuading them to believe what you believe. That, That our relativistic culture says, no, 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 that's off limits. You know, religion and faith, our culture says, should be private. You shouldn't talk about it, which is even doubly hard for us as New Englanders. I mean, we definitely don't talk about our faith. We just don't talk to people. I mean, we're from New England. We don't like to, to do that necessarily, unless we really know somebody. But, but, you know, to share your faith with somebody, our culture says, you keep that to yourself. That's just your private thing. And if religion does come up in a conversation, well, then what you are to do is to understand appreciate and affirm the viewpoints of all those in the conversation. But you're not allowed 
to, to try to persuade someone to see things a different way. You know, you tell someone you're going to a developing nation for a mission trip and they're like, really, what are you going to do there? And you say, well, we're going to do some clean water projects and we're going to provide nutritional training and some uh, health care for the people there. And people go, wow, that's awesome. But say, yeah, I'm going on this mission trip to this developing nation. What are you going to do there? Well, we're helping a church there that's seeking to, to win disciples for Jesus from the people of that culture. And people are like, what? What kind of a spiritual jingoist are you? What kind of a self-righteous religious bigot are you? And so it just faces us in our culture. So what do we do? You know, it's this tsunami of, of political correctness that just kind of splashes over us and extinguishes the fires of evangelism in our heart. How are we supposed to face this? I think this is the daunting question when we get to evangelism today, before any other obstacles, issues, hang-ups that we may have, is just, are we even supposed to be doing this? Or do we even have permission to do this? What makes us think that we should be sharing our faith in the first place? I think that our culture kind of sabotages evangelism before it even gets off the launching pad. So what I wanted to do today was look at one text, a kind of classic um, meat and potatoes foundational text for evangelism and giving the gospel. In fact, it's so foundational and basic that Christians have named it. It has a pet name. It's called the Great Commission. Uh, If you look here in Matthew chapter 28, verses 16 to 20, it's a text where Jesus commands his disciples to make disciples. And I I just think it would be helpful to to kind of reorient ourselves and, and to go back to this basic text. Maybe a text you've heard before, but perhaps not with this perspective of saying, should we even really be doing this? Which I think is a challenge for us in our culture and our society today. So here you have, uh, just to orient you, this passage is, as you can see in your Bibles there, the very last passage in Matthew. In the storyboard of Matthew's Gospel, this is the very last picture frame. And then it's over. So the whole arc of Matthew's narrative sort of goes up to, to the resurrection and ends on this text. And so, this passage has added emphasis. It's the last words of Jesus in Matthew. You know, famous last words. So, there's a particular um, urgency and importance within the structure of Matthew placed upon this last panel as Jesus comes to His disciples. This is after the resurrection. Jesus, the resurrection comes in chapter 8, 28, verse 1. And so, now we have the risen Jesus. And if you look at verse 16, it says, Then the eleven disciples went to Galilee to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go. So after the resurrection, even before the resurrection, there's some places in Matthew where Jesus said, when I'm raised, I want you to go to this one mountain. We don't know what mountain it was. They obviously did. Maybe it was some famous place. They'd had some experience together. But they're going to this mountain where Jesus tells them to go. So they get there in verse 17. When they saw Him, they worshipped Him. But some doubted. It's a great picture of where we're at when it comes to evangelism and following the Lord. We worship, and yet there's hesitancy as we struggle with this. And then then He speaks. And what I'd like to do, with with your permission, is jump down to verse 19. We're going to come back to 18. I'd like to go to verse 19 because that's the actual command to go and make disciples. So we're asking the question, where do we even get the idea we should be doing this? Going out and speaking about our faith and not just keeping it as a personal, private kind of thing. 
And so I want to jump to the verse where Jesus tells us to do this. So it's verse 19 and actually the first part of verse 20. Let me read it again. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you. So you have four basic verbal ideas there. You have the idea to go. Number two is what? Make disciples. Number three is baptize. And verse 20, number four is teach. Now, you've heard this before, I'm guessing, from other preachers, if you've heard a preacher preach on this, because preachers just, for some reason, we feel like we have to do this every time we preach this verse. Um, it's a, you know, why should I break the tradition? Uh, what is, in Greek, there's one verb that's the main verb of this sentence. The other three verbs modify this main verb. So what's the main command of this passage? Does anyone know? Make disciples. So in Greek, the main imperative, the imperative is make disciples. And then there's a participle modifying that, go, or as you go, or going, make disciples. And then the next two are participles modifying make disciples. You make disciples by baptizing and by teaching. So let's just take each of those four concepts and break it down. We'll start with the word go. So we need to go in order to make disciples. Jesus assumes that if we're going to do what he says, we're going to have to get up and go somewhere. Can't do this sitting on the couch at home inside without going. It requires motion. Uh, someone, sometimes people say, well, all that really means is wherever you go, make disciples. And it's a little stronger than that. It's not just, hey, wherever you are, try to make a disciple. But it's, there's an intentionality to it. That, that word go grammatically takes on a kind of imperatival force because of its association with the following command. So it's, you need to go somewhere. Right? Uh, the disciples in the book of Acts, they were going. They, they were being sent all over the place. The book of Acts is, is a very uh, uh, geographically dynamic kind of book. People are going all over the place in the book of Acts. Uh, we have to go. You know, if we're going to follow this command, we have to go. Maybe that means we go to another culture. You know, he says make disciples of all nations. So maybe we have to go to some other nations. Uh, maybe that means the Lord is going to call some of us to go to another continent, another country, to cross a linguistic, cultural, ethnic boundary and go into that context to make disciples. Uh, one of the visions and dreams we have as elders of the, of the church, the elder met this fall and we had a retreat and we were praying and one of the things that came out of the retreat was we would love it if every single member of our church in the next 10 years had some kind of first-hand missions cross-cultural experience where we went someplace. Uh, and maybe it's somewhere near, somewhere far, but we crossed some cultural boundary. We have to go. Maybe going is just as simple as going out to a social event where you've been invited, where you'd really rather stay home because your favorite show's on. But it's like, look, DVR it and go to this thing and, and go to this party or whatever it is. And don't just go and then stand in the corner with the two people you know you feel safe with. You know, go across the room to somebody and engage somebody and talk with them. I mean, how else are we going to be lights for Jesus if we're just kind of stuck in this, this corner? So the point is, we have to go. When you're at Panera or you're at um, uh, Barnes and Nobles and you're paying for whatever it is and the person who's talking to you obviously has an accent that indicates they were not born in this country. So, you know, say, hey, what's your accent? Where are you from? You know, I, I've done that and most people are happy to tell you. you no, know, I'm from here. I'm from there. Like, oh, really? You know, I mean, just, we have to 
but that's the kind of going that, that a lot of us, I think, are uncomfortable with. But if we don't go, this will never happen. So that's sort of assumed we have to go. We can't obey this command if we stay home every single night watching television and have no social life outside of a few closely vetted relationships of people who see things just like we do. It's going to be impossible to do what Jesus is going to tell us next. Then we have this command. Let's go to the second one. Make disciples of all nations. Now, what's a disciple? A basic idea, a disciple is a follower. A disciple follows another. So in Jesus' day, if there was a rabbi and you were going to become that rabbi's disciple, you would, in a sense, put yourself under that rabbi's authority and you would literally follow that rabbi around. And you'd go follow him around, you'd listen to his teachings, you'd memorize his approach to Scripture, you'd perhaps even take on his dress uh, styles and, and habits and life patterns. It was a putting yourself under someone else to learn how to live the way they do, making someone a role model and becoming a disciple. So Jesus would walk to the Sea of Galilee and he'd see these fishermen and he'd say, hey, follow me. That's the call of discipleship. It didn't just mean, hey, come over here, I want to show you something. It meant, follow me. Take your life and put it under mine and, and become a disciple of mine. So what Jesus is doing here, back in verse 19, is He's commanding His disciples, as part of their discipleship, to make disciples of others. And I love that idea of making disciples. Because I I feel like it's very holistic and comprehensive and inclusive. You know, it's a a vision of the Christian life and of evangelism that's more than just making a decision for Jesus. I think one of the the weaknesses of modern evangelicalism, really starting in the 1800s in America and moving on, is that our view of evangelism shifted. And and evangelism increasingly became about helping people make a decision for Jesus. You know, that's the language. And and so we do evangelism. Like, okay, I'm going to tell you this thing about Jesus. Now, do you want to pray a prayer right now to receive Jesus? And, And so the whole goal becomes get someone to pray a prayer. And if they pray the prayer, then it's like, good, you become a Christian. Do and so it's about getting decisions, not about getting disciples. But, but the call here is a lot more than just making a decision. I mean, do you have to make a decision to become a disciple? Of course, of course, of course. There's a line to cross. Jesus says, follow me. You have to decide to follow him. But it's so much more than that. It's, it's one whole life surrendered to Christ and leaving behind one's past. I was down in Florida on vacation this last week. Wow, it's really nice down there. Um, but no, you know, the storms here are great. Uh, so I, I was, but we went to church down there, and this pastor preached the sermon, and it was it was good. He was calling people to come to Christ, to put their faith in Him, and uh, it was great. And then at the end, he led in a prayer, and he said, if if you want to put your faith in Christ, you know, let me just give you a model prayer, the kind you can pray. And he sort of showed people how to pray. And I'm, I'm fine with that. You got to sort of kind of explain to people how that works. But then after that, it kind of, I started getting uncomfortable because after we were done praying, he then said, okay, if you just prayed that prayer and you meant it, you are now a Christian. And I'm like, hmm, maybe. I hope so. But I mean, I, how do you know? The, the evidence of discipleship in the New Testament is always the fruit of a transformed life, not, not a, a, a moment's decision. And then it got worse. Because at least for me anyway, maybe 
you think this is great, but I was just like, ah, you know, my people. But he's like, I want everyone who just prayed that prayer and really meant it and is now a Christian to stand up. And, and so these people stood up around, you know. It's kind of cool. I mean, it was a room of like 2,500 people. It was a huge sanctuary. And there's maybe 14, 15 people who stood up. And it's like everyone clapped. And at one level, it was kind of cool. But another level, I'm like, oh, how do we know? You know what are we saying? What kind of confidence are, are we giving? What are we saying about what it means to be a Christian? I don't know. Who knows if these people are Christians or not? Time will tell. So it's not about making decisions. It's about making disciples, which is something a lot more comprehensive and broad and lasting. I mean, I hope, I hope every one of those people were. But, you know, even the fact that I was counting them. Hmm? Huh. One, two, three, four, fifteen decisions for Christ. Like, yeah, it, it, it just kind of plays into our, our kind of American mentality, I think. So the call is to make disciples. As we go out to, do, to, to give the gospel, we're looking for disciples, not just decisions or things done in a moment, but things with lasting consequences. And then notice the next two phrases that kind of back up this discipleship idea. They're baptizing and teaching. So these are both participles that modify the main verb to make disciples. So they tell us what it looks like to make disciples. What, what, part of what it includes. It, it's not everything we can say about discipleship, but it's sort of like here are some characteristics of what it looks like when someone becomes a disciple or a follower of Jesus Christ. And the first thing is baptizing. Disciples are baptized. That word baptize in Greek means to dunk. You know, we say the word baptize, but the Greek word is baptizo. Well, what does that word mean? And the word, it means to immerse. So Jesus says you need to go out and immerse people in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, which is interesting. There's a Trinitarian formula. Here's one of the early uh, references to the Trinity we have from the lips of Jesus. So when you become a disciple, when you say, yes, I will follow this rabbi, Jesus, and become his disciple, he commands that those who follow him engage in an outward, visible, public ritual of identification where they're baptized publicly. Uh, so, so I would just say, if you're a disciple of Jesus or if you become a disciple of Jesus, the next step for you is, is you, need, you should be baptized. Go get baptized. You know, that's what he tells us to do. You know, take on the ritual. Uh, like Chris said last sun, uh, two Sundays ago when he did the baptism, it's like a wedding ring. You know, when you get married, you take on the symbol of marriage, and I'm wearing it now. So take on the symbol of discipleship that Jesus has given us. Um, and I know this is kind of a challenging thing, and I don't want to get lost on a whole sermon about baptism here, but, but, but I realize for many of us this is difficult because some of you are baptized as infants. Probably the majority of the people here were baptized as infants at some point. And, and so you're like, well, what are you telling me, to be rebaptized? I'm not telling you to be rebaptized. I'm telling you to be baptized. What I'm saying is, if you were baptized as an infant, whatever they did to you and whatever that meant, because it could be very meaningful to your family. I'm not, I'm not denying that it was a spiritually significant moment for your family's tradition and history. All I'm saying is, it's impossible that what they did to you then is what Jesus is talking about here. It just grammatically, obviously cannot be what Jesus is talking about. Because clearly, look with me, baptizing is modifying making disciples. So it's part of a, it's a discipleship baptism. So again, I'm not trying to denigrate what may have happened as an infant or what that meant for your family. What I'm saying is you weren't baptized in the way that Jesus is talking about. 
And maybe you're like, well, why are we making such a big deal of this? This is just, aren't we getting lost in minutia? Aren't we losing the big picture here? I mean, really, whether it's infant or adult or immersion or sprinkling, I mean, there's all these details. Isn't this kind of legalistic, what we're getting into here? I don't know. Is, is obeying Jesus legalism? I mean, why, why, why do we think we shouldn't do this if he tells us to do this? Maybe I'm just kind of simple-minded about it, but I'm like, okay, he tells me to go, so it probably means I should go. He tells me to make disciples, so... I should probably make disciples. He tells me to teach. I should probably teach. But baptism, well, let's not get hung up on little details. It's a minor thing. And, you know, it doesn't matter how you do it or who you baptize. And lots of different opinions. I don't know. I just, maybe you feel the, the flexibility to do that. I just kind of am like, well, if he says be baptized, even though I don't fully understand it always, I, I should probably do what he says because I'm a disciple. And disciples obey. So Jesus says it, okay. I get baptized, fine. You want to wear a tutu? Okay, I'll wear a tutu. You're my master. And I trust you, Jesus. I trust you. I will do what you say. And then the fourth one, teaching. Teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And so we need to teach. And again, here's this idea that that becoming a Christian happens through teaching and and learning to obey Christ. It's a discipleship process. You become a disciple of Jesus. It's not over there. You then enter into a lifelong process of learning to obey. This is the Christian life. Learning obedience. So hard. I'm such a rebellious kid. I don't want to obey Dad. But I'm learning that obedience brings blessing. Like Chris read in Nehemiah, when they finally obeyed the Lord and built the booths, and did the festival, and did the ritual, God blessed them with joy. He said there's joy in obedience. So, so it's learning that the way of God is the joyful, prosperous way for my soul is to follow the Lord. And so we're teaching. Uh, so the church must always be teaching. What is evangelism? It's teaching. You know, evangelism isn't twisting someone's arm behind their back and forcing them to convert. It's, it's just teaching. You're like, hey, let me tell you about Jesus. I don't want to hear it. Okay. If you want to hear it, let me know. Okay, I'm ready to hear it. Okay, well, here it is. Blah, 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 blah. And, and you just teach. That's it. And I think that's important because we're talking about the whole issue of tolerance here and, and, and sharing the gospel and is that intolerant. I, let's just be really clear here. Jesus commands us to teach. He doesn't teach us to, uh, command us to use force, to coerce, to bribe, to threaten, to manipulate, to trick. There's no command here to jihad. There's no command or authorization here to stage an inquisition. Nor is there authorization to launch a crusade to forcibly convert people. You know, has the church done some of those things? Yes. Did they do it on the authority of Christ? No. This was man-made. You know, men like, you know, we, we get into situations like this. We stop listening to Jesus. We want to take control. I'm going to try to use my earthly power to persuade you. And it's, it's like, no, no. We just have to teach and proclaim and let God do the, the converting. All right? That's very important. So there it is. There's the command. Go, make disciples of all nations, which means we've got to cross some boundaries. Baptize them. Teach them. That's why we do this. But again, that raises, it raises that cultural tension now. So now we have this command from Jesus, and it's butting up against this kind of cultural obstacle. Should you really be doing that? Isn't that intolerant? Who do you think you are? 
to impose your beliefs upon somebody else. I mean, isn't that pretty arrogant and bigoted and narrow? Don't we need more openness and open-mindedness in society today? Isn't it this kind of narrow, uh, proselytizing attitude that has ruined the world through religion rather than made it a better place? You, you hear these kinds of arguments. Why do we think we should do this? What gives us the right? And this is when we have to go back to verse 18, which is, the, the, the fuel of this whole Great Commission. Verse 18 is where it's all at. Then Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to Me. Therefore, because Christ has all authority, you can go and make disciples. Here we have the risen Jesus. He's risen from the dead. He has conquered sin. He's conquered death. He's conquered the devil. And He's risen from the dead. And He says, all authority is Mine in heaven and on earth. All means all. It's comprehensive. In heaven and on earth is a way of saying everything. It's a figure of speech known as a merism in the Bible. It's a way of expressing totality by expressing two opposites. Heaven and earth. In other words, I, I own everything, Christ says. He is the vindicated, risen Lord. All authority is His in heaven and on earth, in Hingham and in Weymouth, on Wall Street and on Main Street, in Chechnya and in Cambodia. All authority is His. All authority. And it's a divine authority. That's why He's worshipped by His disciples. Jesus says it's in heaven and on earth. You know, what are the first words of the Bible? In the beginning, God created what? The heavens and the earth. And now Jesus says, all authority in heaven and on earth is Mine. The new creation, the coming kingdom of God, the eschatological hope is come. And Christ says, I am the King vindicated by my resurrection from the dead. In fact, I think Jesus is making a verbal allusion here back to a critical, amazing Old Testament prophecy. And I'd like to show it to you. Put a bookmark here in Matthew 28. We're going to come right back to it. Go back to Daniel chapter 7. Daniel 7. It's on page 882 in your pew Bible. Daniel 7 is a really important Old Testament prophecy. Daniel was a prophet who lived in the 6th century B.C., the 500s B.C. At this point, he is uh, in exile in the great kingdom of Babylon in Mesopotamia. And he has a vision. And in this, it's this really weird vision. It's like something out of a horror movie. you know? It's kind of a Rob Zombie kind of thing. Weird animals and monsters. And it's really freaky. And he, these four animals come up out of the ocean, one after another. One, two, three, four. And each of the monsters that come up out of the ocean represent four kingdoms. The first one represents Babylon. The next one, the Medo-Persian Empire. The next one, Greece. And the last one, Rome. So he, God gives him a vision of four successive great world empires that were to come and in fact did come. And then during that fourth empire, the Roman Empire, comes the kingdom of God. Which is when Jesus came onto the world scene. And I want, to, I want to look at, show you the vision. And this is, so I'm not going to go through the whole vision. I wish 
I wish I had time just to take this whole thing. It's so cool. But look at verse 13. He says, In my vision at night, in this weird dream I was having, I looked, and there before me was one like a son of man. Which, by the way, is Jesus' favorite self-description. He would often refer to himself as the son of man. I'm the son of man. I'm the son of man. You're like, what does that mean? It's Daniel 7. This is where it comes from. So Jesus says, I'm the Son of Man. Look what happens to the Son of Man. Before me was one like a Son of Man, coming with the clouds of heaven. Christ risen, ascending into heaven. And He approached the Ancient of Days. God Himself was led into His presence and He was given authority. All authority, Jesus says, has been given to Me. Glory and sovereign power. All peoples, nations, and men of every language worshipped Him. Make disciples of all nations, He says. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will never pass away and His kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. So when Jesus, going back to Matthew 28, says, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to Me. Go make disciples of all nations. We see people worshipping Him. We see the beginning fulfillment of Daniel 7. The great Son of Man risen, authoritative over all the world, coming and now telling His disciples to make disciples so that we might enter into the joyous, wonderful kingdom of God that rescues us from the nightmare of this world which is underway. It's awesome. You know, when I, when I found that, I was like going crazy in my study. I'm like, wow! This is Daniel 7! He is the Son of Man to whom all authority in heaven and earth has been given. So ultimately, I think we're asking the wrong question when we ask, is evangelism intolerant? I mean, I mean that, well, that's, it's a question to wrestle with, but I think there's actually a more important question that lies behind it. There's a more fundamental question that we have to ask before, is evangelism intolerant? The more fundamental question is this. Who is Jesus? Like Jesus asked Peter, who do you say that I am? And he asks us, who do you say that Jesus is? Is He risen or not? Here we are in this Easter series. I'm asking the basic question of Easter. It's a yes or no question. Is Jesus risen from the dead or not? And if He is, then He is Lord and He is vindicated and He's the Danielic Son of Man. But if He's not, then that's another thing. Is He Lord? And He says, I'm Lord. I rule all things. Right? See, the reason I think our culture has a problem with evangelism is because it has a problem fundamentally with authority, which is prior to evangelism. In our culture today, the conventional wisdom is there is no transpersonal authority. Every person has authority over themselves and their own life, and that's all the authority there is in the world. So, so of course we're going to have a problem with evangelism, because there's no authority to go do those kinds of things. And so when you try to evangelize, people say, well, that's intolerant. You have no right to do that, because there is no rights. Uh, if you were to take the postmodern view and give sort of a postmodern Great Commission, it would go like this. There is no authority in heaven and on earth. Therefore, keep it to yourself. <laughs> and do whatever you want to do to make yourself happy and it's all up to you. That's the postmodern Great Commission. 
That, that's the discipleship mantra of this age. We're all disciples of something and someone. So, Jesus says, no, no, all authority has been given to me. The, the world says, no, there is no authority. Now, that raises an interesting philosophical question, doesn't it? By what authority does our culture say there is no authority and therefore we can't evangelize? If a person says to me the very authoritarian comment that you should not evangelize because that's wrong, I have to ask the question, based on what How is it you're taking a position of authority over me to tell me that sharing my faith is intolerant? Why why do you think you're authorized to be intolerant of my intolerant evangelism? So this is the point. You can't escape it. It's not like there's some people who are tolerant and some people aren't. And there's some people who believe in authority and some people don't. You can't escape this authority question. We've got to face it at some point. So when we as a church, as Christians, face this Goliath of cultural relativism. And, and when we face this challenge of like, should we even be telling people about Jesus? What right do we have to do this? You know, how do we find courage to do it? Unfortunately, I think the common answer in evangelicalism today is, look, the, the way you get authority is you've got to go stealth. You've got to mimic the culture. You've got to find out what kind of music it likes and you've got to make music like that. You've got to do surveys. You've got to find out what people want. You know, if they want church more entertaining, fine. Church has got to be more like Leno. We've got to make it whatever people want. They like, people like video, we've got to work video in. People like more music or more solos or more uh, you know, funny skits, we've got to work that in. Because whatever we do, we don't want the world to think we're not cool, trendy, and down with it. You know, we've got to make the gospel sexier and hipper and slicker so that so we're like oh man we're cool we're cool we're down with it all yeah. we, we fit in and, and I think this is the way evangelicalism is there's just a large trend that continues to go this direction and, and it, take, it just takes new permutations and new forms the latest form is kind of the emergent movement but it just takes these new permutations of trying to, to uh, mimic and copy whatever the culture says but is there real power there? Will we really have a prophetic voice to speak against this oppressive postmodern relativism? Brothers and sisters, I think we have to go the opposite direction. I think rather than trying to be like the culture, we will be more effective by distinguishing ourselves from the culture, by standing different, being more different and more distinct, more, more Christian than the culture. You know? Do you want power and authority to share your faith and to overcome this oppressive relativism? Let me tell you what you need to do. Get up off your couch and go to Galilee. And when you get to Galilee, find the mountain. And when you find the mountain, go up the mountain. I was just down south, so it's like coming out. <laughs> go up the mountain. And when you go up the mountain, wait for Jesus. And lay hold of His feet and worship the risen Lord. That's what we need as a church. Our power as a congregation is not in slickness and cultural savviness. The power of the church has always been 
in the risen Christ. That's why we need to go back to Him. And when we have come to the feet of Christ and put our hope and our trust and our confidence and let our vision be filled up with He who is the Lord of heaven and earth, we will go down the mountain as changed men, women, teenagers, and children to go back to Marshfield High School and to go back to Weymouth Middle School and to go back to GE and to go back to the checkout line or wherever it is you may work or do. And we'll go back as people authorized by the risen Christ and confident. And when the world says, you can't do that, it's like, man, you got to meet Jesus. you got to meet Jesus. This guy's amazing. And let me just close with this. Look at the last sentence. I love this last sentence. He says, Surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. I love that. It's not just now go down the mountain, but it's guess what? I'm going with you down the mountain. He doesn't leave us. He went to heaven, yes, but He sent His Holy Spirit. And so now through the presence of the Holy Spirit, the risen Jesus continues to go with us. So this is not just a CEO way up in some massive company giving orders to middle management to pass it down to the worker bees who then go out and do what He says. This is the CEO who says, I am with you. This is Christ. He's with us. He is Emmanuel, which means God with us. And so Jesus goes with us into the world. Is this not the Gospel that we have to bring to the world? I'm talking about giving the Gospel. What's the Gospel? It's the amazing message that though we are sinners who've rebelled against God, that Jesus came down to be with us. And He went to the cross. He's so identified with us that He took our sins upon Himself. He who is holy became sin for us so that in Him we might become forgiven and become God's righteousness. So it's because Jesus has been with us and died for us to forgive us, that we can even become disciples despite our sin and our brokenness. And now Jesus says, I'm going to be with you. And how long is He going to be with us? Always. To the very end of the age. That word always is really cool. In Greek, it's literally all the days. So you have three alls in the Great Commission. All authority, all nations, all the days. That Christ is going to be with us. Are you a disciple of Jesus? I just want to invite you, if you have not come to faith in Christ, to put your faith in Him and to become a disciple. What, what is holding you back from surrendering all to follow Jesus today? You've got to lay it down. You've got to surrender and put your faith in Christ and become a disciple. Not just a churchgoer, not just a moral person, but a disciple. Lay your sin on the beach, leave your nets, and follow Christ. The same Jesus who holds heaven and earth in His hands stands before us with nail-pierced hands, ready to embrace and forgive and take in and be with anyone who will simply turn to Him. Let's pray. Let's just take a minute and a half of silent prayer and I'd invite you to do one of two things. If you're a believer, 
to just go back up that mountain and worship Christ. Confess your fear and your doubt and lay hold of His authority. And if you aren't a Christian, I I would invite you to take this moment to make that decision because there is a decision involved and to, to just tell Jesus you want to surrender it all and become His disciple. I'll just give you a few minutes to pray silently. prayers through Christ. Amen. Well, let's continue to respond. Would you take the